0: Or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. I wouldn't say we fell in love right away. I think we were, as they call it in the
1: biz, trauma bonding.
0: And then after eight years of being insufferably sober, I started drinking again. Addicts tend to be rather sensitive people. Aren't you Mark Marin? I'm like, yeah. And she goes, What happened to you? Now if you're in recovery from drugs or alcohol, you've already conquered what was holding you back. But addiction is one of those things that can play whack-a-mole, and just when we've dealt with one thing, another comes popping out. Now there's a tool that can help you track your relationship with technology, pornography, gambling and shopping. It's an app co-founded by my friend and recent podcast guest, Gabe Zickerman. It's called Onward and here's how it works. If you're concerned about your potential overuse of technology, pornography, gambling, or shopping, you can immediately start to receive automated tracking and reporting of your use, a customized behavior change program, blocks on certain sites and apps, personalized AI coaching, and so much more. Sign up for a free or pro account by going to onward.org or just downloading directly from the App Store. If you're not sure whether or not you need the help, take the quiz at Onward.org. Just be forewarned, it may give you some news you don't love, but might need. Over 10,000 monthly users have already jumped on Onward, and the LA Times in 2020 are already talking about it. Soon enough, you may be too. That's Onward.org. Hi there, Anna David here. I'm your host of this podcast, soon to not be called Recover Girl anymore, so I'm easing you into this slowly. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. Don't get too attached to the name. If you listen regularly, I'm so glad. If you want to listen regularly, you know you can subscribe. Go to annadavid.com slash iTunes. Yeah, it's there. Uh, This is a podcast about addiction, recovery, and sharing your dark to find your light. This is a highly unusual episode I have today. It's from one of my Facebook Live interviews. And by the way, do you like those? I'm thinking of discontinuing them. Technologically speaking, schedule speaking, they're kind of a pain. But anyway, they happen, as of my saying it right now, uh, every Tuesday at 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time on my Facebook page. Which is just facebook.com/slash David. Anyway, the sound isn't great because of that, but this is a good one. It is with Drew Grant, and Drew is a brilliant writer and editor. She has worked at Salon and the New York Observer, and I get into a pretty detailed intro in the once the Facebook Live part starts. So I'm not going to be redundant, but I will say caveat: we we talk about drugs in a pretty pretty graphic way. In no way am I saying everybody should go do these drugs this is not an interview about sobriety this is about a journey through various addictions and I hope it's not triggering to anybody and I hope you understand we're just telling stories here I don't judge everybody's on their own path but i I think it's important to tell stories that aren't just about church basements and redemption and finding God and 12 step and all of these things um, so that's why I'm giving you this one plus she's a super cool fascinating lady with that i give you drew grant hey you guys anna david here i'm here with the ever fabulous drew grant hi that's drew grant say hi
1: hi i'm drew
0: grant hi (laughs) <laughs> that was the weirdest intro ever I do these Facebook live interviews pretty much every Tuesday at 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time so if you're new just come back next week um, but first stick around because this is gonna be a super super awesome one and if you like your friends slash family go share this go tell them to come watch because this is one you are not going to want to miss um, hey Missy's already here so So what I normally do here is I talk to somebody about their recovery. And I have been accused of only having people who are white, uh, straight, um, in 12-step, super sober, super, uh, just a very limited group. So this is my attempt. You will notice that Drew is is white and she's straight as far as I know Um, and we haven't gotten into that. Not what it's about. I think so. (laughs) Anyway, the point is um, she has a really interesting story and that is a story about doing drugs, hardcore drugs, uh, going through other phases, uh, potentially a little shopping addiction and taking things as prescribed now. She is not somebody who is in recovery. She is somebody who has a really interesting tale to tell about addiction that we don't get to hear. So I cannot be accused of only having sober 12-step people here. In brief, Drew is somebody that I met when I lived in New York. Uh, She's this fabulous journalist. Uh, She's worked at Salon. She was an editor at the New York Observer for many, many years. And what happened is, we had coffee one day. And I think very casually, you told me that you had been a fentanyl addict.
1: Yeah, I forget how it came up. But it it definitely came up in like a, here's a bombshell about me situation.
0: (laughs) Then again, I think I was already we were starting the fix. And I Mm -hmm. think That possibly I said, like, oh, maybe you could write for me or something like that. And you said, oh, well, actually, um, this and 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 then you wrote the story. And I'm not just saying this to kiss your ass. It's one of the best stories I have ever read about addiction. Um, And what you did in that story is you did second person, which I'm a Bright Lights Big City fan. So, (laughs) yes, I think
1: I think I must have been in that phase when I wrote when I wrote this piece. (laughs)
0: it was so good and it starts with you know i I remember it's like you're searching the internet looking for pain is how it starts or something like that anyway i'm so gonna let you talk i totally promise anyway you tell me this i say write this story the stories we debate whether or not you're going to use use a fake name we eventually decide you are Mm -hmm. then years later i didn't know this till the other day when you're at the observer You actually come out and you say, I wrote this story and um, I didn't put my name on it, but now I am. So let's talk briefly about that decision.
1: Okay, yeah, Um, I think at the time when I was writing for you at The Fix and especially at the time that I had been first introduced to fentanyl, which was around 2003. And you know, fentanyl at the time was not an easy drug to find. Like, I mean, still in a rarefied world, it might be harder to find uh, that opioid specifically, something that you can wear as a patch. And it's like a hundred times stronger than morphine. Uh, At the time it wasn't this big national crisis. It's something uh, that I didn't maybe want to think about or deal with in a certain way. And I wanted to have a pseudonym because I didn't, I was younger and started off my career. Um, and then a couple years later, when I was uh, firmly at the Observer, not just, you know, freelancing, um, when Philip Seymour Hoffman died, there was uh, talk that he had been prescribed and was taking fentanyl. And I think that was the first time I read a story that had the word fentanyl that I hadn't written. Um, and I don't know, something hit me. I had no idea how big and how horrible this opioid mess was going to get but i remember at the philip seymour hoffman death that i had to just uh well I asked permission and i basically uh republished the piece on the observer under my own name
0: and did your bosses say hey we maybe don't want to be associated with somebody who's busting out with that they were addicted to fentanyl or did they say that's great
1: Oh, no. Yeah, it was the opposite. Uh, I have this great editor, Ken Curson, and he was so like touched by it and moved by it and said, you know, he had had people in his life that were in recovery or had addiction issues and um, really spoke to me. Like to have an editor behind me that was, um, you know, happy that I would publish this piece under my own name.
0: And so after that, when you how, how did you stop fentanyl?
1: Oh wow, that was a weird one. Um I again, I don't know that much about fentanyl culture as it remains or as it is today in today's uh rural and, and urban areas. But at the time it was so hard to get fentanyl. The way that I got it was so convoluted and complex and involved uh, you know, Craigslist email meetup with a quadriplegic in Coney Island it was it, I was like 23 I was vomiting every day from it getting off of it was just um it it was a, it was a six month month binge for me um and I stopped because uh, I had some friends from high school who were currently on their heroin uh kick themselves and you know living in the high rises of Baltimore and they basically sat me down during a I believe it was like a Google group hangout kind of intervention, you know, like where everyone's kind of not locally together, but it's kind of an intervention. And my friends who were on heroin were like, you have to stop using fentanyl, your liver's gonna explode. And uh, I Googled how long till liver explodes fentanyl. And the answer was literally four months. I'm pretty sure we Googled the exact same thing. And I had been on fentanyl for three and a half months. So I, I decided at that moment that it, I was going to stop. And for me, it was, I think it might've been easier because just, it just required me to delete one person's number off my phone and it would never happen again. Like there was no way for me to get in touch or find somebody else who would sell me fentanyl. So in that respect, I think I had it pretty easy. It's like a, at the time, it was sort of like a magical drug that I found and used, but then disappeared into nothingness. But kicking um, couldn't be easy. Kicking was not easy. I remember I called my dad. It was Father's Day, and I was like, can you take me home from New York? I just moved a year before. I was like, can you take me home? Uh, I am addicted to fentanyl. And luckily, my dad is a addiction specialist who works for the government. Right. So he, um, he, I, I don't really remember the vague details. I remember coming back to New York and sort of getting antsy, climbing up the walls. Um, I ended up doing uh, A for, for a year for that. Um, and then I just realized when, I mean, it really did help me, just help me have something to do when you're on drugs like that. It's like that's how your world exists, right? Like you have that, that's your goal. You only have one problem, right? And the problem is drugs. And and once you stop doing them, you have a lot of other problems. Um, and what I liked about A is it gave me like a social drama to sort of pay attention to. Like I had become very self isolated and suddenly there were all just clicked, these cliques and uh, clicks and bash, you know, little little groups of, of Actions that would hang out. And I think I stayed as long as I did uh, past the point where I was, you know, necessarily getting a benefit from it because I hate the taste of alcohol and I felt like I was kind of being a fraud. But I needed that kind of almost like high school mean girl sort of setup to keep my mind occupied. So I wasn't just climbing up the walls.
0: So it's like you needed a, a brain a, a problem seeking brain couldn't just like live mm-hmm. in the moment. It liked that it had a new problem, even if the problem we all know is stupid. And I totally engaged in it in early sobriety. Mm-hmm. Like it really is like high school and she didn't save me a seat. And who's going yeah. after the meeting and all this nonsense. But that was a good thing. You're saying
1: it was a good thing. Um, What's so funny, though, I mean, in retrospect, only with, like, the the manage of time did I realize that I decided to stop going to AA after a year. And it was a, you know, quote-unquote sober decision that I made. But it was also made because I realized that I could get my first doctor to prescribe me Adderall in New York. And I just decided, well, that's just, I can't go to AA and also be pers- being prescribed Adderall by saying, uh... It had been my drug of choice in college, and I had uh, my parents had been prescribing it, or I've had it prescribed to me since I was little. But it was not something I had been prescribed. Like I had been taking it probably since college, not pres- not as prescribed or not prescribed to me. And I realized I could get a doctor in New York to write me a prescription. So I decided, like that day, to get off of uh, the AA program just yep. because I was like, well, I'm going back to drugs. So.
0: So do you think, what do you think you're an addict and that you just said, well, okay, enough of this sobriety thing. I'm an addict and I can make it work for me. Absolutely. That was like absolutely what I thought. I said, I'm an addict, but I'm addicted to
1: amphetamines, which I've always known. In fact, the only reason I got onto fentanyl in the first place was I was looking on a Craigslist ad. I was searching for the word pain because that was how you found painkillers, say pain relief. And then you know. Usually it also said, like, Addy, Xanax. You could find a shady guy who would sell you his NYU prescription or stuff like that. So that's actually how I found fentanyl in the first place. Uh, amphetamines, Adderall had always been my favorite. Like, literally just Adderall.
0: And so so would you say you're still, like, living in addiction? Um, I would say that after
1: a lot of psychoanalysis, I'm talking four times a week for three, three years now, three and a half. Um, I had finally come to a point where I was like, hey, I'm going to a allow psychoanalysis and that seems to be working good. On the other hand, I have four doctors across four different, about no, three different states for each prescribing me the maximum amount of Adderall, maximum amount of um, Ambien and maximum amount of Xanax. So I was basically taking something like 200 milligrams of Adderall Uh, a day for about
0: five or six years. Wow. That's a lot, yeah. You were working at The Observer and um, living a full life. Oh, super full life. I mean
1: like super full to the max life. I remember there was a period of time where I had just started up TV download, which was a TV entertainment set I did for The Observer. I was getting married in three months, and I had a book deal that fell in my lap, a ghostwriting deal. And I said, I can do this. I did everything in three months. I, I worked during the day to set up this site. At night, I would take Ambien and sort of a, I don't know what you call it, like, you know, conscious, like <laughs> non-conscious writing, semi-conscious writing. Uh, I ghostwrote this YA book, which I guess was legible enough for me to get paid. Um, and then I also planned my wedding. I now, fit into that dress magically.
0: <laughs> what What was your state of mind? Were you depressed? Um, I think I was depressed.
1: But when you're on that much amphetamines, it's hard to feel anything other than, uh, I don't know, like extreme excitement. That's like the first step, right? It, it kind of heightens whatever you're feeling. The problem with Adderall psychosis, which is eventually what I was... At was you know there would be these minor minor breaks from reality like uh, something like going hiking retreat with uh, my partner and suddenly thinking that they were trying to kill me by taking me hiking that kind of stuff not really you know I wouldn't be like okay time to run but I definitely thought it sometimes time to run and I think that's eventually what happened on the breaking points Um, That and the fact that when I would run out, because somehow I would still run out, I would take these, like, three-day comatose sessions where I wouldn't get out of bed, I wouldn't go to work, I wouldn't answer emails, somehow still remained employed. But it got to a point where it was just, you know, bordering on psychosis. So, um... Yeah, I worked for a year and a half going down from 200 milligrams, and I'm currently on 40, working on 35. I've just been cutting away. Um, I really, It was really happy for me when I got down to a legal dose, and I completely cut out the uh, Xanax from my life, which is pretty amazing.
0: That's amazing. Now, why do you think... <laughs> weren't suffering any repercussions really you were holding on to your job um mm-hmm. were you suffering repercussions
1: i i don't know honestly the repercussions that i felt like i was suffering from and i know this is gonna sound like first world problems to the max was that i was feeling like my life was happening with or without me being present in it like i was having this wedding that seemed to be going on despite the fact that there were these you know three or four days out of every week, there'd be crippling depression on the couch, can't move, or like mania, like, you know, all night mania. And it felt like if I didn't go to work, I still had a job. If I didn't act like a human being, I was still going to get married. It didn't feel like I was part of my own reality.
0: Well, and your life has changed tremendously. You're not married, you have 3,000 the miles, You're, you don't work there anymore. But those weren't questions? Um, I think those were, these were things that I wanted to
1: do. And I think I used going down on the drugs uh, as my motivation to to move to LA. Because I knew that I also had triggers here. I'd gone here to visit friends for, you know, I'd go every month of the winter month. I'd go for like one week out of every winter month. And I had three doctors here because there's no I-STOP program or there wasn't when I was coming here. Um, so I had a lot of triggers that I knew would just want me to go back to the Adderall. So I made a deal with myself that if I could get down to a certain amount, um, I'd be able to to try to go. And luckily, there was a conf- or luckily or unluckily confluence of events. Uh, the Observer shut down its print run, so it was online only. Um, my marriage went away, so I didn't need to stay in New York and, uh, I've always wanted to live here.
0: Now, do you ever see a time in your life where you wouldn't take anything?
1: That's a really good question. It's a question I'm asking myself a lot. Um, so I'm working with still my analyst back in New York and a really good for the first time, a really good psychiatrist who I'm honest with. Because, you know, those were always the people I was trying to scam, not my analysts, but the psychiatrists, you know, making sure I was presenting all the symptoms of all the things. I knew how to do it. I also just knew how to smile and and say, oh, you know, I just knew everything to say. I'd ask about the kids. I build up a rapport with each doc. It was almost like I had little notes. Um, now I'm totally honest with my psychiatrist, a lot less to in my head about people's you know, lives, I actually don't know anything about his life. Um, but we've been going down a lot. Like when I got here, I was probably still on 90. So still a lot and on Ambien and Xanax. So I started chipping away. No one can make you do this except yourself. Like, so no analyst or psychiatrist or husband or anyone can tell me to stop taking 200 milligrams of Adderall a day. I really had to just decide, okay, five milligrams is down every two weeks. That's manageable. And when I got here, I just really stuck to that. It became like this new ritual that I had to do. And it gave me another project.
0: Right, right. You don't have the the social uh, mean girls of AA to focus on. So now your project Mm -hmm. is like weaning yourself off. But so, is a goal to be entirely clean? Were you happier during that year?
1: That's what I will kind of want to find out. And I'm kind of almost too scared to find out. Um, I've never really thought of myself as somebody who needs to be sober completely. Like I just realized early on, I don't have an alcohol problem, except that I don't like the taste of it. Therefore, if I occasionally go out and have you know, whiskey and coke. I'll probably drink half of it and then leave it at the bar. So I don't believe that I need to be. Um, just for me personally, that I need to be sober. I need to like live live a sober life. Um, I smoke pot. I have the medical weed card. It's really helped me like get off of the. Sorry to get off of the um, anti anxiety medication. CBD is actually this amazing part of the marijuana plant that doesn't make you high but it does I mean it's incredible it literally took me one day to get off of two milligrams of Xanax a day using CBD which is like utterly impossible (laughs) so I don't know if I always plan on being sober or going down to nothing I think for me my brain chemistry is always going to need a little something
0: well do you not believe them that addiction and alcoholism are the same thing
1: i believe that they're two. i think addiction addictive personality can go towards anything i think it can be addiction to i mean i noticed this in myself i have like these hoarding addiction habits towards weird things like crystals and I almost collect them in the same way that I collected pills. Like it needed to be the pill bottles. I needed to see them in a certain, you know, for me, I think it's a lot more ritualistic, which is why maybe the drugs are not the most typical drugs that you see. Like my pattern outline is not the most, you know, conventional right. story that you'll, you'll see or hear.
0: Well, then again, increasingly, cause you're a millennial, right? Right. I think I'm in the older millennial category. Yeah. I mean, I, well, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think since I got, you know, my era was like cocaine and heroin, Mm -hmm. I guess. And the next is seems to be all, all pills and certainly the opiate problem right now. But so why do you say that? Why do you think you have brain chemistry that is always going to need something?
1: Well, I, I think about it like this. Like, I remember being a little kid in school and having incredible anxiety that um, manifested in, let's say, uh, well, let's just call it as it is, masturbation, chronic masturbation and school problems. Um, it, was, it was unstoppable. <laughs> it was obviously class disruptive. It was some sort of addiction I had to, whenever I felt anxious, to furiously masturbating in, like, first grade, second grade. And then they put me on Ritalin, and that stopped. That So is- I don't know... <laughs>
0: Well, it's, it's interesting. Too. I've been in all these conversations about kids who masturbate. And um, somebody was just telling me this story about like, this person who thought his daughter was having seizures and took her to all these. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. A doctor was like, she's masturbating and having an orgasm. And we live in this society that doesn't allow kids to have any sort of sexuality. But that well, is also
1: like, as a teacher, I think it like for a teacher, what was a teacher supposed to say? Like a male teacher supposed to say to a, like a seven or eight year old it was like clearly self-pleasuring
0: now but there are medications there are all sorts of anti-anxiety medications that are not um you know mood altering
1: mm-hmm. and they didn't put me on an anti-anxiety let's be clear they thought that my thing was hyper attention adhd um so they put me on ritalin and i remember the feeling that first day of second grade i came home I don't know why I have memory of coming home and, and taking a pill instead of, you know, trying it in the morning. Um, I remember playing Super Mario like I always did. And I remember suddenly Super Mario was like the best game. I, I No, it wasn't Super Mario. It was Donkey Kong Island. And suddenly Donkey Kong Island was the best game I ever played. And my sister, who I had hated up until that point, she wanted to come play with me. And I was like, yeah, yeah, get in on this. Get in on this Donkey Kong Island. You can be that smaller Donkey Kong thing that you get from crashing over a barrel. I, I remember the next day waking up and there were like blisters up and down my thumbs uh, for playing that game so hard. And apparently the the teachers, as, uh, as my mom tells it, the teachers took her aside like a week later and were like, whatever you did, thank you so much for like changing her.
0: <laughs> now, I don't mean to be this person, but what if in fact there was a spiritual solution like what if there was a way for you to be sober and and find you know what they t- teach in 12 step programs and find a way so that you don't need that that'd be dope
1: like i uh, sorry let me be clear like i'm i am trying to get down to zero of any controlled substance um right now I'm like on a very small amount of clonopin i'd like to get down to zero on that I'm trying to still get down to zero on Adderall. I think the goal is to find out if any is needed. I doubt the answer is yes. Like I really doubt it at this point in my life. If I have masturbation issues at 33 years old and I work from home, those can be taken care of very easily. Um, the, the other stuff like, you know, the antidepressants, the the mood stabilizers, I don't know. I mean, that's if there was a spiritual answer for that, I guess that would be great. Um, I've certainly learned to start taking naps, which I think are a good first step towards a better spiritual life. Naps are amazing after like over a decade of amphetamine abuse. Naps are like the craziest thing.
0: Naps are. Um, I, I don't know how to, my body won't nap, so I have to take your word for it. That's that's what, I,
1: that's what I thought. And then napping happened, and I was like, this is a drug. This is a drug you're giving your body, and it's extra sleep. It's amazing. Sorry, I don't mean to rub in your face, but naps are amazing.
0: <laughs> no, but I'm glad you said that, because when you just said that about naps, that's what I was going to say to you about that's what I thought that there absolutely was no way my brain could ever function without some sort of chemical changing it. Oh, and by the way, to be clear, I take a mood stabilizer. I take something, yeah, yeah. you know, that doesn't make me high or whatever it is. So I have yet to prove that I don't need to take anything. Um, but, but I, you know, I think most, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to make this some preachy, like weird, like intervention-y, almost like your Google Hangouts thing. It's not that, I swear <laughs> to God. This is that all over again. Now we're Facebook-living my intervention. <laughs> Are you like horrified right now? No, no, I'm totally cool. Um, yes, and um, so, so... This is why I wanted to have this conversation, and I told you this before, is that that everybody's got a different story. And for my first 10 years of recovery, I thought you had to do it the way I did it. I believed that jails, institutions, or death, if you're not doing recovery in the way I'm doing it. And I've learned that all sorts of things are possible and that everybody's got a different story. I am not saying, based on this conversation we're having, that anybody should go out and try to take ADD medication or whatever <laughs> What do you tell people who, or what what is your message to people who have had a history with those drugs, are interested in those drugs, might become addicted, that kind of thing?
1: I mean, the saddest messages I get, and and these come like way too frequently, uh, especially it's been a couple years now since I published the story with my name on it about fentanyl. Uh, Very frequently, like once or twice a month, somebody emailing me, it's usually a vet of some sort or somebody who, I mean, unless it's like a weird con, but it's usually somebody writing me a very long email about their addiction to fentanyl, how they were given it after the army or some traumatic event, and how they don't think they can live without it, and the pain management. And a lot of times it's not about trying to get them off it. They're not trying to ask for that. They're trying to have somebody tell them you know, hear their experience and and kind of feel like I know what they're talking about. I have told people, don't try Adderall. Uh, Like, you know, I have this thing with cocaine where for a while in college, I kept trying to like it. Like, (laughs) like alcohol, I would keep being like, well, you know, maybe if I take a snort at this party, it will feel better and not like weird medicine that's going down my throat. Oh, no, I hate this feeling. Um... And I kept trying it, and I kept hating it. And one day, I just kind of like alcohol. I just wake up and say, "This drug isn't for me." And I tell that to people who are trying Adderall, who are trying Ritalin, who have you know recently been prescribed it. Where in the olden days, I might be like, "You don't need it. Give me a give me your prescription. You don't need it." Now I can actually say, uh, you know, I'm not a doctor, but especially if you're older, like above the age of like 12 to 13. Also, I'm not talking to twelve to thirteen year olds that often. If there's somebody in their twenties, I go, you know, you probably don't need it. It's really a, a stimulant that's given to kids to kind of quiet them down. And uh, as long as you're not not narcoleptic, there's way better things for you to
0: do with your time than go down that path. So, yeah. Do you? What are your regrets? Uh, we got to get close to wrapping up, but what are your regrets yeah. about this? All of this. Oh, God, I regret uh,
1: so much money. <laughs> so I regret all the I would have so much more money um, because not only going doctor shopping is hard because you can only pay the insurance out or get your insurance to pay for one thing of the drugs. And then your all your other doctors, not to mention I was flying here all the time to get my two doctor prescriptions worth over here. I had a lot of money or a relative amount of money from just writing that book. And I think we sat down and realized I not only took that money, but then worked myself into 15K of debt in one year, mostly from doctor shopping and getting all these uh, medications. So that would be my biggest regret.
0: Um, Well, we didn't get to talk about your fabulous career at all because we got, this got so fascinating, but- we you do work for this fantastic site now? Do we want to talk about that?
1: Um, yeah, Real Clear Life. We're kind of uh, rebuilding it from. Uh, it started as a Tumblr. It's now a really cool site. We it's a cool site, especially because we do only three original stories a day, and they're like you know really cool, interesting stories. We have Steve Huff, who is a true crime reporter. He has a column with us. We have Thelma Adams who does movie criticism. I mean, we have some really big hitting names, and we also publish just really great essays and, and you know perfect the kind of perfect long read, I would say. And we're mm-hmm. still kind of getting there, but um I'm really excited to be working on new projects. And yeah, definitely check out realclearlife.com.
0: And I will say, Jesse Rose, who's in my coaching program, we did an interview in my private group for the coaching program. And and Jesse pitched you and and wrote a story for you, and so that's a lovely. She did. We called us badass ladies earlier in the comments, so we love her. Nice. Uh, so Drew, I cannot thank you enough for this. I think people really liked it. Um, if you mm-hmm. have any parting words, I'll shut up and you can share them.
1: Um, no, just you know, don't take a chill pill if you're feeling <laughs> if you're feeling freaked out like I was right before this. Um. Think about not taking a chill pill.
0: Hugs, not drugs. Hugs, not drugs. I guess. Yeah. Sure. Hugs, not drugs. are yourself. So than I am. I that just really, uh, that just really hammered that home. You guys, thank you, Missy. Thank you, ayana Stewart. Everybody who chimed in and paid attention. Jonathan, Jesse, Dawn. Um. I will see you next week four o'clock Pacific Standard Time. And um, yes, and everybody's thanking you for sharing. So Drew, thank you so much. Goodbye, you guys. Thank you. Thank you. It weren't for you. Okay, bye. bye.